Word in South Africa. Shout out to Carl Word. Moby, how are you? Fine, thanks. How are you? Terrific, thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's so great to see you and so great to have this conversation. Oh, my pleasure. How is everything going on your side so far? Uh, well, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's so many ways to look at that. I can look at it personally and subjectively. And apart from baldness and mortality and the erosion of democracy in the United States and climate change, things are okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we would need more than 30 minutes to dive into that, wouldn't we? <laughs> yeah, it's actually, I mean, like, it, it's like asking someone, like, how's it going has always been a loaded question, but especially yeah. now at present, like, you could almost have like a 18 hour long dissertation just as a response to that question. All right. So, well, let, let's move on from that. And let me just take a moment to congratulate you on what an absolute masterpiece of an album that has has just been released and what i've had on repeat for i can't tell you for the past week and a, and a bit it's unbelievable oh thank you very much it really and truly is phenomenal so it's it's as i said what a great honor to chat to you and to go through that album over the the records that you've put together with the track list where there's obviously super well-known tracks and then the, the ones that were less known that have that have had life put back into them with some of the most amazing collaborations um what i wanted to start off with was outside of the album how has it been for you over the span of your career you know when it comes to how music consumption has changed and how you've maintained such a great line of communication with your following and fans yet alone keeping in touch with yourself as moby well uh, I mean, to put it in context, when I was growing up, I assumed that I was going to be uh, a teacher, a philosophy professor. And I also assumed that I would spend my life working on music that no one would ever listen to. You know, so I never really even for a second thought that I would ever have a record deal. I never thought I would release records. I never thought I would play concerts in front of more than 10 people. Cause I, I used to be in a, an underground punk rock band and it was, we had a good night. It was playing to 15 people. Yeah. So basically in summation, there's no part of my career as a musician that has not been completely surprising. Um, you know, I, if my career as a musician had involved releasing one underground dance 12 inch that sold a thousand copies, I would consider that to be a success. So everything else beyond that has been really just completely surprising. And sort of to your question about like the way in which music is distributed or created or disseminated, uh, I find myself as time has passed, just being a little bit less interested in how music lives in the world commercially and just simply looking rather at like almost the emotional utility of music, like how music delivers, you know, emotion to people because, and forgive me for saying the obvious, but ultimately all of you know the way in which music is made distributed that's all changed completely but what hasn't changed is the act of sitting down 
and listening to a piece of music. You know, like we still only have two ears and we generally only listen out of two speakers. And so that that hasn't changed in a very in a very, very long time. The sad thing is the way that it's being consumed is also on a much shorter attention span to a point where I think artists kind of lose interest over a certain time where they're making music that has a short lifespan where it doesn't necessarily live on to that emotional realm that you're talking about when a musician is sitting making an emotional piece of music. It's not necessarily, I mean, it, it, that's, that's reduced over the past couple of years, I've found. Yeah, I mean, when I was growing up, which was a while ago, uh, you know, I would save up my money for a couple of weeks and I would buy one album, you know, and that album was a precious thing. And I would take it home and I would listen to every song over and over and over again. And I would read the liner notes and I wouldn't, I, for the most part, wouldn't do things while I was listening to music. And obviously now, for the most part, music is a soundtrack for people doing other things, which I can't criticize that or complain about that because that's just the world in which we live. But, you know, like now, and again, I'm stating the obvious, but people have music as the soundtrack to being on social media, to doing a whole host of other different things. And that's, that's fine. But as you've alluded to, what's been lost is that old fashioned notion of listening to a piece of music. I mean, granted, there are still a lot of people who will make that effort, mm. but um, as we know, like a, a lot of music just sort of, it sits in the background while people are on Peloton or while they're DMing <laughs> their friends on Instagram or while they're, you know, like, which is, again, I don't want to be an old guy complaining about that because it's just simply the way things are, but every now and then I force myself to sit down and just listen for an extended period of time, like not use music as the soundtrack to anything else, but just to pay attention to it. And it's really interesting how truly wonderful music reveals all these wonderful layers when you really apply attention to it. And by the way, just to be clear, I'm not including my music in that. <laughs> like, I'm just saying, well, well, <laughs> the process of listening to other people's music, like I'm not so narcissistic and self-aggrandizing yeah. as to say that I sit down and listen to my own music and experience new revelations. Like, no, I'm talking about listening to like <laughs> a David Bowie album yes. or yeah. Rhapsody in Blue by George Gershwin. Yeah, well, well, let me t flip that for you with a very short story that sounds sounds like it's almost from a movie. And I was nine years old. Um, I was living in New Zealand at the time. We were driving around uh, an area called the Bay of Islands. And at the time, you know, I think many people these days may not know what a Discman or a Walkman is, but at the time I had a Discman and I had Play. Um, and that was the album I was listening to while we were driving around. And it was raining. You know, this really, it, it, it really does sound like a scene from a movie. And it was at that point where Porcelain came on. And being fairly young as I was and a, a fan of music, it was at that point where I had this realization that listening to music and diving into that album in, in particular 
allowed me to realize that there was way way more to it than just electronic bits or bits from a band or bits from any other sort of musical instruments you know that there was an emotional resonance that happened to me pertained to me and I'm sure it obviously pertained to you with making a record like that where we speak on the emotional side with music and that leads me to the point of Porcelain being one of the records that still surprises you to this day is being the one that resonates with so many people. Uh, well, and what makes it sort of ironic is originally I didn't think that Porcelain should be included on that album on play. Um, in fact, I didn't think I thought the album play was going to be my last album. I thought no way because I, before Play was released, the album before that was this album called Animal Rights, which was this very dark, uncompromising, incredibly difficult, almost like punk rock industrial album. Mm. And clearly no one liked it and no one bought it and the reviews were <laughs> terrible. So after Animal Rights, I was dropped by my American record label. Um, and when Play was released, it was almost, it felt like, an act of charity on behalf of Daniel Miller, who owned Mute Records. And when we released it, we thought like, okay, it'll sell 10,000 copies. If we're lucky, I'll do a tour for three weeks. Um, and to put that in perspective, the first show of the tour for the album Play was in the basement of a record store for 30 people. Yeah, yeah. And I was okay with that. I thought that's, this is my life as a musician right now. I'm yeah. playing to 30 people. That's fine. Um, so the album itself was never expected to be successful. And the song Porcelain, I thought I had done such a bad job mixing it and arranging it that when I was thinking of including it on the album, I was like, oh, it's just like, there's no real chorus. The drums are kind of soft. Um, my voice is kind of thin so I thought of not including it and then my manager at the time said oh no actually it's a nice piece of music you should include it so I'm very grateful for for him to it for, for saying that yeah well this this happens so often um with multiple artists that I've I've spoken to in the past is it always it always set, ends up being the one record that artists think all right let's actually leave this off or I don't actually think this is going to do much that actually it does you know, going back to Reprise and um, the work behind that album, how was that emotional journey for you to go back to some of these records that span over 30 years, coming back to them, re-piecing them together? Well, especially, I mean, because music is, uh, there is, and, and I don't want to over, overstate it, but there's, there's a time portal aspect mm. to music like similar to what you just described like being nine years old in the bay of islands in new zealand listening on a discman you know like it's so easy through music to actually really connect to the past you know if i think of the past i can remember it i can connect with it but when i think of listening to my favorite album, you know, like listening to an Echo and the Bunnymen album in 1982 yeah, yeah. on my Walkman, all of a sudden I'm there. Yeah. And so that's, so the time portal or the, we'll even call it like the time travel, time portal aspect of music is really powerful when, when it's other people's music, but it's especially powerful if it's your own music. So 
when working on the songs on reprise, I kept remembering simply the circumstances in which the music had been created. Yeah. Because the circumstances are so different from what my life is now. Like now I'm a middle-aged guy. I lead a very boring life in Los Angeles. Like I go hiking, I work on music. I occasionally see friends and read books. Like I'm pretty boring. And for example, when the album play was being made, I was an out of control alcoholic going out constantly, but still working on music, but going back even further, like one of my earliest songs is called go. And there's a version of it on reprise. Yes. And when that was written, I was living in an abandoned factory in a crack neighborhood and I didn't have running water or a bathroom. You're kidding. And I just think it's, it's kind of, and also I had hair back then. So that's how, <laughs> that's how old that was. But like remembering being with my very rudimentary equipment, yeah, cobbling together this song and thinking to myself like, Oh, as I mentioned earlier, like if a thousand people were to hear this song, I would be the happiest musician on the planet. You know, mentioning Go, that's outside of the podcast side. Uh, the Trent Muller remix resonates to me as well, just from a club perspective. And it was from that point as well where I started to discover these these multiple facets to the music. And going back to what you said, being at a time portal, you know, was it was it a overall good experience for you going through each track which had a specific time and place in your heart and in your life? going through that, I mean, it must have been quite difficult as well to check the tracks that are going to be on the album uh, and then cross off those that aren't. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So a lot of what we've been talking about has been sort of circling, like if I was, to, if I was, if this was a, if you were like presenting your dissertation to me, I would say like, well, the core of what you're saying is actually really, it's something that I find really interesting, which is there's music itself and then everything that surrounds music. Yeah. You know, so there's like a piece of music, but then there's, as we discussed earlier, like the way, and sorry, I don't want to sound too academic, but I can't help myself. Um, you know, there's the way in which music is made, the way in which it's disseminated, the way in which people listen to it, um, the way in which past music was created, the way current music is created. And all of that, I love thinking about, and I find it to be really, it's, it's fascinating, but what I will say is over time, what's happened is I've almost divorced all of that from the actual music itself. And what I mean by that is there was a, there's been a long period where I thought quite a lot about how is the music going to be received? How, how am I gonna master these recordings? How, you know, will it get played on the radio? Will it be successful? How will it go over live? Mm. And as time has passed, I've actually been pushed or I've ended up in a very almost wonderful, simple place where, and sorry for rambling on, but I'm interested in all that. But ultimately at its core, there is, music like the song itself the non-corporeal non-tangible piece of music mm. that has the ability potentially to make people cry or dance or feel transported and so i've almost had to like 
bifurcate my brain and say like a one part of me yeah. thinks about the way music lives in the world. But you can almost say that's the sort of like the Newtonian corporeal aspect of it. And then the other side is the literal quantum aspect of it. The part that doesn't conform yeah. to laws of physics, generally speaking, you know, and that magic that music has to communicate emotion is so that that's what really sustains me. So everything else I love talking about, but it's the, the ability to release a piece of music and that it might connect with someone in such a profoundly emotional, intimate way. Like that's, that's my focus. That's why, and I know majority of these interviews and this interview in particular is to discuss the album. But the, for me, the fascinating thing is, is the, the artist's connection to the music going back to the time of which these pieces are made. And that's, that's what fascinates me the most. You know, we can, we can uh, dissect the records and we can dissect how it was produced, but the emotional connection with music, like we've discussed, is what really fascinates me. And touching on that one more time, you know, when you're sitting around making music, thinking of a melody, thinking of an idea for a record, no one would be the wiser. You know, you must have this endless bank of music that no one's ever heard. But at what point, and I know this touches on porcelain to a certain degree, but at what point to yourself, when you're making anything, do you actually go, right, this has, has to be heard? Well by more than just me. Um, I don't know if I ever have thought that something has to be heard. Um, I guess, and maybe this is my own issues that I should deal with in therapy, but it's more the, more the thought of, oh, I've made something that, that might be good. Let me put it out into the world and see what people think. Working under the assumption there's a better than likely chance that whatever I've made will be ignored. Uh, especially, you know, recently, like releasing albums that are sometimes kind of obscure, like you fully understand that like track eight or track nine on an album of new songs might never be heard by anyone. Um, but you just sort of, you just hope you put, you know, you release music and you think, well, I've worked hard on this and I love, I personally love this music. Let me see if anyone connects with it. So rarely do I feel like an evangelist for music that I've made. Like I, I rarely do I feel like I need, or like I feel the confidence to say that people should listen to it. What I can say is subjectively, I like it and cautiously hope that other people might like it as well. One, one of the favorite records that you mentioned when you were actually going through the behind the scenes of, of reprise, you mentioned uh, the lonely night and obviously, I mean, you had Chris Christopherson uh, join you on that and Mark Lanigan. And uh, what, what really drew me into that was your, your points about it being a reflection of the dark night of the soul. I, I, I want to uh, touch on that a bit. Um, when re-piecing this album together, it must have been quite cathartic for you, right? I mean, the this, this single. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because a lot of the music on the record, some of it in it, in the way it was written is not collaborative. You know, like I mean, there are some songs that were just me alone in my studio, but then there are other songs mm. that originally were very collaborative 
And then of course, working with an orchestra, working with a gospel choir, working with different singers, et cetera, it becomes very collaborative. But that song in particular, uh, Mark Lanigan wrote the lyrics and I'm so, like it's one, it's a really nice thing as a musician when you can sort of bask in the reflected glory of someone else's great work. You know, like, so when I listen to that song, the lyrics connect with me more than if I had written them. Because if I had written them, I might be critical of certain phrases. I would be overthinking them. But because Mark Lanigan wrote them, I almost have a degree of sort of like, Mm. dispassionate objectivity around it which makes it that much easier to connect with it and the same thing with hearing a voice like hearing their voices on that particular song Mm. i can actually have some uh, emotional objectivity because it's not me singing like i don't love hearing if i was singing it i probably wouldn't like it as much i'm so much happier listening to other people's voices than with regards to uh reprise how how important is it for you now surrounding yourself with the correct team, not necessarily musicians, but the correct team that can actually understand where you come from, where you don't have to explain yourself at any given point. You surround yourself with the right people. I mean, that must be quite a process to sift through many years of working with teams of people in the music industry. And I'm sure you've got multiple stories that we could go on for. Uh, but I mean, in the most recent period. Well, the one thing I sometimes have to remind myself is, I mean, because of course, as an only child who lives alone and works alone, I can definitely be inclined towards solipsism. Yeah. Uh, and I have to sometimes remember, like, everybody has their own life. Everybody is coming at things with their own perspective. And, you know, for example, there have been times in my life when I've made, you know, uncommercial music, but I've expected my record companies or people to respond with a lot of enthusiasm. And I sometimes have to remember like, oh, they're working for a paycheck. Like they are trying to put their kids through school. They are thinking about, you know, like how they can make payments on their parents' retirement homes or whatever. And I have to remind myself, okay, my criteria for assessing what I'm doing might not be the same criteria that the people I work with have. And so I have to, I have to be reminded of that. Like, so is it a balance between going against the, the, the machine essentially? Yeah. I mean, and the machine, like even cause there can, you know, especially living in Los Angeles, like there are a lot of people who are in the machine as, yeah. and I know that's very self-evident, but there's yeah. so many people making very safe content and very, you know, being incredibly cautious and, you know, you know, whether it's production companies, streaming services, record companies, you know, making music, making art, making content that won't offend people. Yes. Yes. Um, (laughs) And it's, it's disappointing, but I also have to remember like, Oh, they are thinking of, as I said, like buying clothes for their kids yeah. and making a mortgage payment. Like they're, as opposed to me, like footloose and fancy free. I have no kids. I live alone and I get to do whatever I want. Like I can't expect them to buy into my brand of sort of creative anarchy. But in a sense, that kind of restricts you 
Very much so. Well, it, it restricts me insofar as I, because the thing is, I also am unwilling to accommodate them. What I will do is say like, okay, if I make something really obscure, I'd like to release it, but I understand it's not going to get that much attention. Whereas every now and then I'll make something that the cautious executives can embrace and get enthusiastic about, but I want, I'm not ever willing to compromise to accomplish that. If it happens, it's fine, but I certainly don't want to make generic pop music just to satisfy the cautious criteria of executives. The reception on Reprise has been unbelievable. Uh, I've I've taken it to heart and it will always be such a close record to me, a- along with the rest, especially play, as I mentioned earlier. Um, so I just uh, wanted to congratulate you once again on such an amazing piece, which I love dearly with all the records that are on there and I respect all aspects of your music and your work and it's been an absolute honor to chat with you and uh, i really look forward to following more and more of what's to come oh well thank you that's really kind of you to say yeah it was it was a really great pleasure to talk with you as well